Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Audio original. We've been working on this story for a while now. It's been painstaking work. If you want to find a needle, you've got to be prepared to sift through a lot of hay. We've been shown many thousands of documents related to British American tobacco's operations in South Africa. And forensic security services, the private security company BAT contracted to carry out its operations for them. We've seen a briefing document in which FSS agents discussed whether or not to invest in technology that would allow them to tap people's phones. We don't know if they ever bought it, but they certainly didn't appear averse to the idea. These documents are read by an actor. Personally, I think an application such as this can be a great aid to our investigations and be an invaluable tool from intel gathering to damage control. We've seen invoices for the spying gear they certainly did buy, tracking beacons to keep tabs on their targets, including some of BAT's competitors. And we've seen copies of certificates signed by two of Belinda Walters' handlers, the men we're calling the Englishman and the Welshman. They're training certificates for classes the men from BAT gave to the FSS agents, teaching them skills in human intelligence and defensive surveillance. We've seen evidence that between them, BAT and FSS had around 200 informants on their books, and that senior security honchos at BAT played a significant role in orchestrating the operation. SIN 109, total paid, 120,000 rand. BAT strenuously deny any wrongdoing and point to the fact that the UK's serious fraud office investigated matters and concluded there was insufficient evidence for any prosecutions. SIN 124, total paid, 75,000 rand. Not all of the information we've uncovered turns out to be relevant. It's hard to know for sure until you've gone down the rabbit hole. We've spent an awful lot of time investigating a series of invoices and emails that revealed FSS were using a complicated web of shell companies, which seemingly existed in order to move money. South African companies called things like Vixen and Associates, or BTEC, through which FSS would funnel money that had come from BAT. Sometimes they'd even confuse themselves as to where the money was supposed to be going. The invoice is incorrectly made out to FSS. It should have been made out to Vixen and Associates. Sorry, I have paid this to BTEC before I read email. I knew I couldn't get through the day without one hiccup. We're not sure what the point of all these shell companies was. If they were intended to help hide the money trail, well, it hasn't worked. But on the other hand, many of the guys at FSS had been boots-on-the-ground police, 
veterans of South Africa's brutal apartheid years, not forensic accountants, which might help to explain why one of the companies was registered in the name of the wife of one of the FSS top brass. And whilst setting up a network of shell companies using your wife's name might seem like a peculiar thing to do, it's not in and of itself evidence of wrongdoing. As you'd expect, sifting through all that information has been a mammoth task. At the Bureau of Investigative Journalism, we're a non-profit team, with only a fraction of the resources that would have been available to the Serious Fraud Office, the UK government body which investigated BAT and decided the evidence was insufficient to bring any prosecutions. But we may have found something that the SFO might not have considered. Something potentially significant. It looks a lot like a needle. Something we think is very hard for the tobacco giant to explain. So, what did we find? It seems as if BAT may have been aware of a negotiation of a bribe by FSS to representatives of one of the world's most notorious dictators in the run-up to a rigged election. It's an allegation BAT have declined to comment on specifically, though they deny any wrongdoing. You'll have to make up your own mind as to exactly what happened, because we're going to show you the evidence and introduce you to the middleman who set the whole thing up. I can get you back in there, and we will meet the right people. I had to make it clear that they're going to expect a nice, thick envelope of notes. You're listening to Smokescreen. I'm Victoria Hollingsworth from the Bureau of Investigative Journalism. This is the story of how British-American tobacco came to be involved in corporate espionage, bankrolling a network of spies, informants and private intelligence agents with the effect of infiltrating some of their competitors and helping keep their grip on the lucrative Southern African tobacco market. This week, we're going to tell you how the private security company hired by the tobacco giant came to be embroiled in a major scandal, negotiating the proposed payment of a six-figure sum intended for one of the world's most abusive dictators. This is Episode 7, The Needle in the Haystack. We're standing in a river that acts as the border between Zimbabwe and South Africa. We can see several young men wading their way through the water, which comes up to their hips. These people are navigating their way across the crocodile-infested Limpopo River from Zimbabwe into South Africa. You might think that they're economic refugees looking for a better life across the border, but you'd be mistaken. These people are cigarette smugglers. This was an episode of South Africa's premier current affairs programme, Carte Blanche, broadcast in 2014. The smugglers were struggling across the river with large crates of cigarettes on their heads. They slip undetected through the border fence and meet the transporter at a rendezvous point near Bait Bridge. 
Each box contains 50 cartons of cigarettes. Cigarette smuggling has been and remains a big problem in South Africa. It's a form of tax avoidance. The cigarettes are smuggled over the border to dodge the excise duties and other taxes. It means the cigarettes can be sold much more cheaply. And by cutting out the taxman, the sellers take home a larger share of the spoils, depriving the South African public of huge amounts of money every year. It's a point that one of the programme's interviewees, an industry representative of British American Tobacco, was only too keen to stress. Since 2010, our government, by estimation, has lost more than 15 billion rand due to illicit cigarettes. The very important point is the illicit cigarettes funds, feeds and supports organised crime. So whose cigarettes are being smuggled, according to this report? One of the biggest brands making its way into the local market from Zimbabwe is Pacific, a brand produced by Savannah, a company belonging to Adam Malai, who it turns out is married to Sandra Mugabe, Robert Mugabe's niece. Adam Malai disputes this and claims it's part of a smear campaign. This is a really important point. According to the reporter, many of the cigarettes then being smuggled into South Africa from Zimbabwe had been produced by a company owned by a man called Adam Malai. He's a tobacco mogul who, it just so happens, is married to Sandra Mugabe, the niece of the much-feared dictator Robert Mugabe, who at that time ran Zimbabwe with an iron fist. Mugabe and Malai are two important characters in this story. So, it seems simple enough, right? This report suggests that there is evidence of illegal smuggling. It's important to remember that Adam Malai denies this and points out that such allegations have been made for years and that his company has never been charged anywhere with any such offence. On the one hand, we have the dictator linked to a manufacturer which has allegedly benefited from smuggling. And on the other? Well, it might surprise you to learn that in this version of the story, the good guy is British American Tobacco, the upstanding corporate player battling bravely against the increasingly rampant blight of cigarette smuggling. Here's that BAT industry representative again. Three years ago, we were sitting on around 20-21% illicit incidents, which is already very, very high. And then it went to 26%, and where we sit today at a level of more than 30%, 31% to be exact. That means, by implication, that almost one in three cigarettes smoked every day in this country is illegal. By now, I'm sure you've realised that this story is never simple. And as ever, there are many layers we need to peel back. Let's rewind the tape. These people are navigating their way across the crocodile-infested Limpopo River from Zimbabwe into South Africa. You might think that they're economic refugees looking for a better life across the border, but you'd be mistaken. These people are cigarette smugglers. We're back. Avoiding the crocodiles in the river, dividing Zimbabwe and South Africa. The cigarette smugglers are wading across the water. And behind the camera, who is it that's secretly filming them? 
we've uncovered a document which indicates that the person who recorded this footage was an informant paid for using BAT's money. Their identifying number was SIN182. And SIN182 was involved in a secret mission called, and I'm not joking, Operation Banter. But SIN182 wasn't happy. They weren't getting paid on time. And so according to this document, the informant decided to leak the footage to the press. SIN-182 provided carte blanche with video footage taken from one of the border crossings and loading points. The producers have now incorporated the footage into her story, due to be aired this coming Sunday, the 26th of January 2014. The document then details claims that two FSS agents tried to get the story pulled. It says they... Met with the producer to have this footage taken out of the programme. A compromise was reached when we could assist with the editing to sanitise the footage where possible. And the document reveals that Operation Banter wasn't the only thing FSS were doing in Zimbabwe while working on behalf of BAT. The document describes another operation in the country, codenamed Project Charlie. Project Charlie is responsible for the gathering of information and disruption of the supply line from the factory in Zim to the distribution of the stock in South Africa. This isn't the only document we've seen that shows FSS were expanding their operations outside of South Africa. We've seen evidence that they also operated in Botswana and Mozambique. And evidence also suggests they were deep inside Zimbabwe. And as part of their activities, they were seemingly focusing on the company belonging to Adam Malai, the tobacco mogul with links to the Mugabe regime. Here's Malai talking to Carte Blanche about the impact of FSS's operations against his business. Vehicles are tracked from the moment they're loaded from our factory in Zimbabwe. That's how bad it is. We heard in the last episode that FSS were willing to use all sorts of underhand methods, including against BAT's competitors in South Africa. Now it seems they may have been using some of the same techniques in Zimbabwe, a country where their relationship with the real police force was less cosy. In that context, upsetting somebody so close to the Mugabe regime could be a risky thing to do. We've uncovered evidence that suggests Adam Malai may have taken matters into his own hands in an apparent bid to stop the company contracted by BAT from meddling in his affairs. It's been alleged that Adam Malai brought it to the attention of his uncle by marriage, Robert Mugabe, who, it's claimed, took a personal interest in his nephew's problems. Which might help to explain why, in October 2012, three private agents, contracted by FSS, were charged in Zimbabwe and subsequently thrown in jail accused of conspiring to hijack Adam Malai's tobacco trucks. How far would FSS, the private security company used by BAT, be prepared to go to get their agents released? 
It's a question that strikes at the heart of what we've uncovered, the needle in the haystack. It's Monday, January the 7th, 2013, less than a month since the FSS agents were imprisoned in Zimbabwe. We're at the seaside in Durban, South Africa. It's a warm day, about 26 degrees Celsius. We're here at the beachfront to eavesdrop on a secret meeting between two men. One of them is South African. He's an FSS agent contracted to work for BAT. And the other is a man we're going to be calling The Fixer. The Fixer has been working to try and negotiate the release of the three imprisoned agents. He's been meeting with a very senior member of the Zimbabwean regime. The Fixer has called this urgent meeting with the FSS agent to relay what he understands to be Mugabe's demands. The reason we know about this is because there's a record of that meeting in a debriefing document that we've managed to get hold of. It's a pretty mind-blowing read. The document is read by an actor. Monday, January the 7th, 2013. Met with a fixer at Durban Beachfront after he requested to urgently meet with us to relay a message in person from the brig in Zimbabwe. The brig refers to Brigadier General Asher Walter Tapfermane, a former minister in Robert Mugabe's ZANU-PF government and now a senior member of the Zimbabwean Central Intelligence Organization. Brigadier General Tapfermane is an interesting character. He's previously been implicated in the abduction and torture of a prominent Zimbabwean human rights activist, an allegation Tapfermane strongly denies. And the document says that the brig had bad news for FSS. The brig informed the fixer that FSS had become a serious challenge within the ZANU-PF ranks. In conjunction between numerous state agencies, and in particular the Central Intelligence Organization, various information had been collected and in particular driven by Adam Molai, who played a major role in exposing FSS operations in Zimbabwe. According to the version of events laid out in this document, the tobacco mogul Adam Malai, who just so happened to be one of Robert Mugabe's in-laws, had been helping to gather and spread information about FSS's activities. Adam Malai told us that these claims are untrue and denies any wrongdoing. The information which had been supplied and collected was then relayed through to the president who has taken a personal interest in the matter. Although top ranks in various state departments are aware the role Adam is playing, due to the president's involvement now, no state department will get involved any further in this issue and no assistance to FSS will be forthcoming in the future. The document claims that the Brigadier General told the fixer that the arrests were intended to send a message. The involvement of FSS in Zimbabwe will under no circumstances be allowed to continue and their arrest will be imminent at this stage if they return to Zimbabwe. So the reported message from the brig was clear. B 
BAT's hired security company was no longer welcome in Zimbabwe. And he's reported in the document to have said that the imprisoned FSS agents will be held over a period of time in the cells to get a message across of the seriousness of this matter and the fact it is possible to keep them inside for an unlimited amount of time, irrespective of the charges against them. It was further alleged that about three operatives were picked up in early December and beaten into making statements against FSS. Various rogue elements in the Central Intelligence Organization are driving this matter as well. It was again made clear we can expect no assistance from any State Department. So, if this was what was really happening, FSS was in a tight spot. Not only were their agents going to rot in jail, but their entire Zimbabwean operation was now under threat. But, fortunately for them, the report of the meeting says that the brig had some good news as well. He had an idea about how all of this might be smoothed over. However, there is a solution to this problem. And this is the message the Brig wanted relayed. With the upcoming elections, a donation to ZANU-PF would pave the way for negotiations to continue. With this donation, they could then go back to the president and show him FSS willingness to continue wanting to get this problem sorted out and would open the doors to continue this project in the near future. So according to this, a donation of up to 500,000 US dollars would be required in order to pave the way for further negotiations. It sounds an awful lot like a bribe is being proposed. When our team at the Bureau of Investigative Journalism approached Brigadier General Tapfermane, he denied any knowledge of what was described in the FSS briefing document. There is no evidence whether the proposed payment was actually made or not. However, we know that not long after the idea of a donation was allegedly floated, the imprisoned agents were released and the company continued to operate in Zimbabwe on BAT's behalf. The document also doesn't say whether British American Tobacco was aware of the negotiations being carried out by FSS while working for BAT. But the document suggests that the payment was given serious consideration by FSS. It certainly wasn't dismissed out of hand. The fixer is ready to continue with phase two as soon as funds are available. We need more, though, in order to back it up. Was the bribe paid? And if so, did BAT know anything about it? Don't forget, BAT deny any wrongdoing. To find out, we've been on a mission to try and track down the fixer. And thanks to one of the reporters here at the Bureau, a journalist called Matthew Chapman, we've managed to get hold of a phone number. So in June 2021, Matthew gave the fixer a call. We understand they got into some trouble um, in Zimbabwe. They, they got on the wrong side of the Mugabe regime, by the sounds of it. And I understand you might have helped out as a field operative to, to kind of send messages between the two parties. 
This is a recording that Matthew made for note-taking purposes, so I can only play you his side of the call. But what I can tell you is that when this was put to the fixer, he gave a deep laugh and said, you definitely know more than you should. The fixer was keen to find out how we'd uncovered his secret role. Yeah, we got a we got a piece of documented evidence um, um, about that. Um, we've actually got a colleague of ours is in is in South Africa at the moment, and like could meet with you, have off the records, face to face. She'll be able to like discuss more, like rather than us speaking over the phone. It might be. I feel like these things are always best done face to face. If you if you might be willing to meet up with her. Fortunately for us, the fixer was happy to talk. And so, with the help of our colleagues at BBC Panorama, he agreed to go on the record to spill the beans as to what he knew about the secret deal. That's coming up after the break. There's a lot at stake in that game. Millions upon billions of dollars, uh, you know. My face, my voice gets out there. It won't be good for me, I don't think. The voice is an actor's, but these are the words of the fixer, who acted as a middleman for the British-American tobacco's South African private security company, FSS, and the Mugabe regime. The fixer says that it's his understanding that everything FSS were doing was conducted as part of the company's work for BAT. The entire thing was built around British-American tobacco, and that was mentioned out in the open and often. For obvious reasons, I can't tell you too much about who the fixer is. He's told us he's an intelligence operative with impeccable contacts in the Zimbabwean government. I worked very closely with certain intelligence agencies as an operative within uh, the Zimbabwean military and intelligence hierarchy. At that time, I was working in an organization called the Ministry of State for Presidential Affairs under Robert Mugabe. And I was an operative within that organization. And as a result of that, I knew then the generals and the ministers that were in charge of that. So the fixer was well-placed when the call came in from FSS. They needed his help. And the fixer's account of why they needed his help closely matches the story we've already heard in that secret debriefing document. There exists a large uh, illicit tobacco smuggling network out of Zimbabwe into South Africa. And a lot of the principles in the alternative tobacco producers are politically connected. And as a result, there's a lot of factions, uh, a lot of infighting, and people were set up. People were imprisoned, threatened with various levels of, of hell. They had, as far as I recall, uh, fallen foul of the authorities there and needed a, a very high-level reintroduction so they could plead their case and then have access to Zimbabwe and the, the Zimbabwean tobacco industry again. So, beyond his extensive contacts, how was the fixer able to arrange high-level access between FSS and the Mugabe regime? Well, of course, the brown envelope. It's a very common way of calling it in this part of the world. 
you must remember these these guys had already fallen foul of the authorities. And in a country like Zimbabwe, once that happens, the way back is a is a stone cold road. And and so when we met and I said, I can get you back in there and we will meet the right people, um, you know, I had to make it clear that uh, you're going to expect a nice thick envelope of notes. I said to them that I'm going to need a, a relatively substantial amount of money in local terms just to ensure that they understand that you guys are serious about this negotiation that you really wanted to happen. You always sweeten that in local politics with cash. And that doesn't guarantee necessarily that you'll get what you want. It's just the beginning. What the fixer is saying here is that, in his opinion, paying bribes was the price of doing business with senior figures in the Zimbabwean regime. And that's just the money, he says, was needed to start a conversation. Money that came out of a budget, he says, was personally handed to him by FSS. According to the fixer, this cash enabled two FSS agents to be granted special visas to enter Zimbabwe. They then flew in, and I met them at the airport and chaperoned them through the security checks, just to ensure that they weren't um, a red flagged and taken away by security services. All of that was smoothed over. We went directly into a meeting at the Ministry of State's offices. Here's how things went down, according to the fixer. The FSS agents were sat around the table with Brigadier General Tapfamane. And it's here, the fixer says, that the donation was discussed. There is no way to access those power networks within countries like Zimbabwe without paying money. And so in due course, during the course of the discussions, it was mentioned that there would have to be certainly a lump sum paid towards ZANU-PF towards Mugabe's re-election campaign and so on and so forth. And very large numbers were discussed at that meeting, from half a million dollars and upwards. He says the FSS agents didn't appear to be averse to the idea. They certainly didn't throw up their hands and leave at the mention of a large donation. It was mentioned that they understand that that's part of the process that they would take the request back to their principals and that in due course they would revert back to the ministry and the generals with an answer. There's absolutely no way that they would have been able to say no. Had they said no, they would have been marched off and perhaps even arrested. So what can the fixer tell us about the crucial question? Was the proposed bribe paid? He has no concrete evidence but believes the circumstances suggest it could have been. I believe so. Um, I do not have evidence of that. I only made introduction and spent at least two or three, four months working on that project at that time. But what happened was there were people released, and uh, as far as I know, FSS and Associates then resumed activities in Zimbabwe and had free access to travel and to carry on their business. Proving to a criminal standard that a bribe has been paid is a very hard thing to do. The evidentiary bar is just so high, beyond reasonable doubt. And only the people directly involved would know, with complete certainty, what had really happened. 
The fixer says that having these kinds of top-secret meetings with high-ranking figures in a dictatorship can be intoxicating. Being so close to absolute power can give you a false sense of security that your secrets are safe. There's a certain confidence, you know, when you're meeting people like high-ranking generals in the military intelligence of a dictatorship. You do tend to start feeling a little bit uh, bulletproof. And they tend to be, though, in a formal setting. You're talking about highly corrupt activity behind very closed and very solid walls. So yes, I think they would have had a confidence that this would never break. News would never reach outside ears. But the news did leak. And the way it happened is extraordinary. The reason we have the crucial document that triggered this investigation, the needle in the haystack, is because, and I'm not joking, an FSS agent accidentally attached it to an unrelated email. And we've seen evidence that suggests someone at BAT may have known something about the proposal which was being negotiated by FSS. We've seen an email from exactly that time period, January 2013, in which it's claimed that a senior member of staff at BAT had requested more information on, quote, the pros and cons of donation to the party. The email says that the matter is, quote, urgent. Robert Mugabe was a dictator who ruled Zimbabwe for almost four decades. In that time, political corruption and human rights abuses were rampant, with forced disappearances and torture commonplace. And the proposed donation came in the run-up to the 2013 general election. A contest Mugabe had to fight hard to win. In the end, he won handsomely. British-American Tobacco declined to comment specifically on the allegations outlined in this programme. They told us that they deny any wrongdoing and deny ever having acted illegally. They stressed to us that the UK's serious fraud office had concluded in January this year, after carrying out an investigation into BAT's operations, that there was insufficient evidence for any prosecutions. We've been digging into what may have been some of the reasons behind the SFO's decision, and we've managed to unearth some interesting angles. They point to the kinds of obstacles faced when carrying out major investigations. And we haven't forgotten about Belinda Walter, the woman whose story set this whole train in motion. We've been speaking to people who knew Belinda to find out why she seemingly got cold feet about providing her evidence to the serious fraud office and why she then disappeared. That's coming up next time in the final episode of Smokescreen. Smokescreen is a podcast from the Bureau of Investigative Journalism for Audi, produced by Novel. It was produced and written by Tom Wright. It was researched and investigated by me, Victoria Hollingsworth, Matthew Chapman and Malcolm Rees. Our executive producers were Max O'Brien, Myrian Jones, Rachel Oldroyd, David Medell, Owen Bennett-Jones and James Ball. Our fact-checkers were Alice Millican and Frankie Goodway. It was mixed and edited by Alex Portfelix. With special thanks to Alon Avaram at the University of Bath, 
who first uncovered the secret briefing document, and the team at BBC Panorama, who secured an interview with The Fixer. Audio extracts from South African TV programme Carte Blanche, produced by Combined Artistic Productions. If you've been enjoying Smokescreen, please don't forget to like, comment and share this podcast. Apparently it helps other people hear about it.